Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. Listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. Coming back at ya with uh, what is this like part four? We just can't get enough of kidnappings. And man, there's been stuff in the news recently. I can't even, we're not even going to get into it because we've been doing so much research on this uh, one case that we just want to dive right into it. And that is the case of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus, and the horrible monster we know as Ariel Castro. All right, so we have a little disclaimer for this episode. This one deals with a lot of sexual assault and some animal abuse. And if that's not that it should be anyone's cup of tea. But if you're sensitive to those things, maybe this isn't the episode for you. But you could always just play it backwards and then everything has a happy ending. No? Okay. Well, anyways, back to the story. (laughs) This takes place in Cleveland, Ohio, but we're going to do a little bit more before that to familiarize you with this creep. Uh, Kevin, you also watched some stuff recently, too. I watched a BBC documentary and a couple 2020 things and some pretty funny interviews with... Um, the, a neighbor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Cooper Anderson. Is that that fucko Anderson name? Cooper is the guy who interviews him. CNN guy, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, interviews that neighbor, Charles, the one that yeah, yeah, but one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're... Spoiler alert. <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah. So we're just going to get right into it, all right? No okay. bullshit, right? Speaking of shit, Ariel Castro is a piece of shit. Was. Was a piece of shit. Spoiler alert, Jesus Christ. Well, no, already, everyone knows that. Um, speaking of him being a piece of shit, I just want to get his backstory out of the way and focus on the survivors in this episode. But I think it's really important to understand his past and also to talk about his former wife 
who was also brutally beaten and abused for Air- by Ariel Castro for years. And this is years before the kidnappings. If that had been dealt with properly, then a lot of the story could have been prevented, but that didn't happen. So I think it's important to lay it out before we get into it. Ariel Castro was born in 1960 in Puerto Rico. As a child, his family moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where members of his extended family already lived. His father, Pedro Sr., had a missing arm because it had been chopped off with a machete during a gang dispute. I only I only found that in one report, and it wasn't that well reported. I believe that's what they were trying to say in the report. I, like, looked up. Is that for real? I think so. I mean, it was in a fa- I mean, it was in a fairly credible news source. I just couldn't really there's not much on his family. And so it was just like I wanted to include it because it sounded kind of cool. Well, yeah, I've seen YouTube videos of machete fights. Why? Why? Why are you watching those videos? Well, because. Yeah, well, <laughs> his um, his dad was a car salesman. I do know that because that was reported a few places. In the 1980s, the Castros moved in across the street from Ariel's future wife, Gramilda Figueroa, known by friends and families as Nilda, and that's how I will refer to her from here on out. This is a quote from Mrs. Carabayo. Man, I should have practiced these. Carabayo, who is the sister of Nilda. In the article I read, it didn't give her first name, so I'm just going to refer to her um, by her last name. She said, I never did get along with them. I just never did. She claimed that Ariel Castro frequently shoplifted and showed his fiery temper while his brothers were hard drinking and unpleasant. And you watched an interview with them, right? I watched the interview with the brothers after he'd been caught. Right. Yeah. Do they seem like good dudes? I mean, I don't want to be too judgy or anything. Um... It seemed like this whole thing really broke them. They were, I mean, one of uh, his name is Onil, Onil. Yeah. And uh, he basically said he was dead, This that this whole thing had killed him, and he was just a walking corpse. That's what he said on, mm-hmm. like, on like this I know, and interview. they look like they're mugshots because they, they were taken into custody after, like, because either both were with him or one was with him I when he got caught. I think they were caught. both with him. Um, their mugshots, I mean, they look half dead, you know, it, yeah, I would imagine that that would totally break a family. Um, and we'll talk a lot about his family later on. Ariel and Nilda first lived with both sets of parents, limiting, limiting his ability to be violent towards her. In 1992, Castro bought a house at 2207 Seymour Avenue. Whew. You're going to hear that a few times. And live there with Nilda and their four children. Uh, Away from their parents, he began abusing Nilda more. Castro was first accused of abusing Nilda in 1989. He quote-unquote slapped the victim several times in the face. He slammed her several times against the floor and several times against the washing machine, according to a news report. Published reports citing court records say that Ariel pleaded no contest and was given probation. He never served any jail time for that. In 1993, police were called to Seymour Avenue and Nilda told cops that Ariel, quote, threw her to the ground, hitting her about the head and face and kicking her body, unquote. Is it unquote? End quote. Sorry. (laughs) Disquote. Disquote. Um, The woman had recently. Oh, this is the part. The woman had just had brain surgery and he was beating her up around the head. And she still had wounds from the operation. 
their son, Anthony, which I think that that's what he changed his name to later on, because I believe his name was Ariel Sr. So his or Jr. So yeah. his name was Ariel Jr. And so he's like, yeah, fuck that. And he changed his name to Anthony. Good call. Yeah. Uh, their son, Anthony, who was 12 at the time, ran out of the house to get help when he saw his mother being abused. Ariel was arrested, but Nilda dropped the charges, probably terrified or threatened by him. There's definitely laws on the books now. I know this from Law and Order SVU um, that like you can't just simply drop charges against someone um, that easily. People still have to like investigate and stuff because it is so common for women and men to be scared out of testifying or, um, you know, keeping those charges held against their um, captor or their abuser. Um, so it's not, it's not as simple as just dropping charges these days, I believe. At least I hope so. SVU. Thank, us thank you, Olivia Benson. I've learned so much from you. Dick Wolf. <laughs> All hell started to break loose, said Mrs. Carab Carabayo. I need to you're, get, you're getting, Spanish. You're getting there. I know. I'm trying. Okay. At least I didn't say Caraballo, which I'm sure most people say. <laughs> I would go over to the house and be knocking at the door and she was there and he wasn't. And I'd say, open the door. And she'd say, I can't. He locked it. So even then he had locks on the inside. <laughs> That's not a red flag. Yeah. He broke her nose, her ribs, her arms, and she was put into a box at times. Mrs. Caraballo said, oh, I did pretty well then. A box? Yeah, he put her. I, That's what she said. Maybe it was a closet, but she said she was put into a box. Everybody needs to know that my sister was abused by him. She was a victim. She didn't do anything but cook, clean, and take care of those kids. And I really wanted to reiterate that quote there because she was victim number one or potentially even before that, you know, this is yeah, totally. like, like it. it's not like it's just the story of these three girls like, there were so many... It's fucking crazy how many warning signs there are with this guy. In 1996, Nilda was finally able to leave Ariel and took custody of all of the kids. In 2004, Ariel got into a fight with Nilda. Okay, this is fucked, okay? Th I mean, everything's fucked, but I really hated this on top of it all. <sighs> okay, so Nilda went on to another relationship with this fuckhead... Named Fernando Colon. Spell that for me. Colon. Colon. <laughs> C O L O N. Colon, right? Colon. That's all you need to know. She should. She should have stayed away from Colon. <laughs> He's he was a cancer. <laughs> In 2004, Ariel got into a fight with Nilda about testifying against her then boyfriend Fernando Colon. Colon was accused in 2004 of raping the two young daughters that Ariel and Nilda had together, which I believe, Jesus, really? which I, I know, which I believe are Emily and Angie. Ariel threatened to beat Nilda if she failed to testify. She later dropped her complaint against Ariel. Cologne was later convicted of child abuse and served three years in jail. So she went straight out of the relationship with Ariel and into a relationship with someone who raped her daughters. And then that dude only got fucking three years. I don't exactly. Yes, he only got three years, but I maybe I think she testified against him. I'm not sure. But fuck, dude, like this. I'm not victim blaming at all. But like, goddamn, you need to learn to pick them better. I don't know. 
What's up with Cleveland? I know. Fuck you, Cleveland. Get it together. (laughs) Yeah, just fuck Cleveland. Except for, wait, is that where LeBron James is from? You're asking the wrong dude. (laughs) Not that I care. I just think that that might be the only good thing about Cleveland, and he doesn't live there anymore. So, at least I don't think so. I don't know. Everyone's going to hate me for this now. I'm sorry, Cleveland. (laughs) All right. So... That's fucked, right? Very. Last couple of things. He's also a shitty musician and was a public school driver. Like, what the fuck? From February 1991. Uh, yeah. From February 1991 until November 2012. And if I can cut in. Please do, sir. They interview some of his bandmates and stuff because he played in some salsa bands. And they were saying he was the best. Uh, There's three of the best. Best rapists we know. <laughs> bass players. I was going to say bass players. Top three bass players in the whole city. Well, Cleveland's a shithole, so I don't think that's saying so too much. So you get one plus out of one zillion negatives. Yeah. So. Got to be good at something, I guess. Yeah, and like the him being a musician will come up a little bit, but uh, throughout the story, and him being a bus driver will come up as well. Um, so he worked for being a public bus uh, school driver, bus school, school public bus. school bus driver. Yeah. <laughs> He did that for about 11 years, and he was fired in November of 2012. He had many bad marks on his record, including making an illegal U-turn with children on his bus in the middle of rush hour traffic, and he used his bus to go grocery shopping. Once, he <laughs> left a child on the bus while he went out for lunch. I think it was a special needs child, too. Um, he, like, locked the kid in the bus, and then once he left the bus and attended while he took a nap at home, and that was when he got fired. It was the nap at home that did it. Oh, wow. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know what to say. I know. Okay. <laughs> so now on to the survivors and to the people I actually want to talk about. However, I do want to point out that Nilda, Ariel Castro's ex-wife, was a survivor, and oftentimes she's forgotten about because of the salaciousness of the kidnappings. She was his first victim. Additionally, his children, Anthony, Angie, and Emily, are all victims as well, because they had to and have to live among the fallout that their father created. Okay, well, Angie may have not been the biggest victim, but we'll talk about her more later. But she also got raped, right? Yes, but she also turns out to be a humongous piece of shit, though, too. That's that's another story. Okay. Most of the research that I did for the episode was by reading memoirs of the survivors. First, I read Gina De Jesus and Amanda Berry's dual memoir called Hope. I wondered why Michelle Knight was not a part of it. In the foreword, they wrote, Michelle Knight was also a captive in Ariel Castro's house, and we invited her to join us in writing this book. But she decided to tell her story by herself. She appears throughout our account when she had significant interactions with us. We wish her only the best as we all try to recover and rebuild our lives. At first, I thought it was a strange response from Michelle. For me, I would have wanted to collaborate, but I also haven't been in this position before. So rather than judge, I decided to read her memoir as well called Finding Me, and I read that much more recently. So I I know it a lot better, and I'm probably going to draw from it more. Then it all started to make sense. Although she endured the decade-plus abuse that the other had also encountered as well, Their stories, how they unraveled and the afterward, are radically different from one another. I didn't know that Michelle Knight had suffered years and years of abuse prior to the kidnapping. 
Now, this isn't to say that Amanda and Gina said anything bad about Michelle in their memoir, but she was weirdly absent and separate from it at times. However, I know for a fact that Ariel pitted them against each other and played favorites. He not only physically tortured them, but he psychologically tortured them as well. Ariel always wanted a younger, blonder victim, and Amanda was that for him. To him, Amanda was his wife, and Michelle was his punching bag. Amanda had the nicer room. Amanda was kept on looser chains. She was held captive in the basement for less time. And when she was able to move upstairs, Ariel took away Michelle's color television to give it to Amanda. Amanda was allowed to keep her baby, and Ariel beat Michelle so badly that she miscarried five times. So no, they didn't hate each other. But again, the extra horrible abuse that Michelle received was exponentially worse than Amanda and Gina's. Fucked, right? Yeah, the whole beating until... She, until she miscarried, yeah, uh, so five times, so and then brutal. on top of that, he would yell and scream at her for murdering his baby, and this was because he was Catholic, so he wasn't allowed to like induce an abortion, abortion or like get rid of a baby, but he would beat her out, beat it out of her. <laughs> I know he's such a humongous piece of shit. Ugh. Okay. Um, additionally, it sounds like both Amanda and Michelle got along with Gina. She was like the little sister they both needed. She was also the youngest of the three, abducted at only age 14. Amanda was abducted at 16 <laughs> one day before her 17th birthday. Isn't that... F I mean, just everything about this is fucked. Yeah. Michelle was 21 and a mother at the time of her abduction. Again, I'm going to talk a lot about how all the stories are very different from one another and how their experiences are all different, even though they're all stuck in that same house together. They have such wildly different experiences. This is all to say that these three women all went through hell. But Michelle's hell began well before she was held captive in Castro's place. Michelle's hell was longer, deeper, harsher, and didn't necessarily end when she left the House of Horrors on Sycamore Avenue either. Did you like that? I thought that was kind of nice, right? Yeah. Some good writing right there. There you go. <laughs> I will start with Michelle Knight and the information that I got from her memoir called Finding Me. Michelle had one of the worst lives I've ever heard of. She was born to transient-prone parents, often living out of a brown station wagon and eating apples taken from a local orchard as their own source of food at times. She also talked about how um, they would just throw the apples in the back for later and then, like, forget about them. And so on top of being in this brown station wagon, it was full of rotten apples and it smelled like shit. Oh. Yeah. Nice. I mean, it's five people living in a station wagon. Fuck. She had two younger twin brothers, Eddie and Freddie, that she, very inventive names, that she partially played mother to, making sure that they ate, brushed their teeth, and had clothes to wear. When they did land in houses, it was often just for two or three months at a time with a random family member. Often there would be up to 15 people in the house at a time. When her family finally got a house of their own, a family member began violently raping and abusing her. I think she was like five or seven years old. I actually forgot to look that up, but she was super young. Throughout her story, I'm going to just like give chunks of her memoir at a time when I thought that either she wrote something really well or she said something that I couldn't have possibly paraphrased better. So the first time he abused her, 
she was actually going to get a cup of water. It was so cramped that like she had to like pass by her mom. I mean, I think she was sleeping within like feet of her mother when this happened. The first time he abused her, he said, don't try to get away. She recalls, I started to cry. My mind went crazy. Why is he on my bed? Can Ma hear this? Just do what I tell you to do and no one will get hurt, he said. He put one hand into his boxers and then he put his other hand on my head and he pushed me down in front of him. I wanted to scream, but when I tried to, no sounds came out. If you tell anyone about this, he said, I will kill you. At school, she was often absent, and when she was there, she would fall behind. She had no friends. She was bullied for her smell because she didn't get to shower often, living in a house full of a million people and having utilities cut off at times. The very few embarrassing outfits that she had, her Coke bottle glasses, her height. I think at that time, I think she was only like 4'2". I think the, ha- the tallest she ever got was 4'7". And for being behind in school in general. At age 15, she ran away from home to run away from the abuse that she was having to endure. And she started living under a highway bridge. She used to sleep in a garbage can or bin. And this dude like came by to see her. And he looked like Arsenio Hall because of his hair. And he said, you can call me Arsenio. And she often has this connection with black people throughout the entire book that is very, very special that like black people are some of the only people that showed her any kindness. And Mm. so seeing her be in the way that she was, he invited her to the predominantly black church and she was able to eat meals. And she just said it was the best food she had ever eaten before in her entire life. So she very much like kind of latches on to African-Americans throughout the text and it'll come up periodically as well. Eventually, a drug dealer named Sniper, (laughs) just a casual name, found her and gave her a job dealing weed in ecstasy. There, she met a dude, and and he was super cool. (laughs) Well, that's a... I know. So, like, I kept waiting for her to get raped by this dude, you know? Like, he's all, hey, come over here, you know? Yeah, I'm Sniper. I need you to do a job for me. My name's Sniper. Sniper's the only decent motherfucker in Cleveland. And, like... He fucking let let her take a shower. He had clean towels. And I think he had like a little sister. So he had like women's clothes he gave her and they were clean. And he she had her own fucking bedroom. And like the place wasn't disgusting. And so she was like floored by like how nice of a life she was living. And she's like, all I have to do is sell drugs for this dude. Yeah, fucking no problem. Um, and he even gave her a gun. So like. This dude totally yeah. trusted her, and he never tried to take advantage of her. Um, he eventually, like, uh, also had this other dude working for him named Roderick, who I think was Middle Eastern, and they ended up becoming super close and, like, BFF as well. And he gave her, like, um, some kind of piece of material as, like, a shawl or something, and he said it was, like, I think it was his sister's, and he said, because you're, like, a sister to me, I'm going to give you this. And so it, she just, be- they, like, became this very, like, motley yet functional family for as long as it lasted Hmm, weird um after sniper was arrested she went um back to her garbage bin (laughs) eventually a family friend spotted her called her father and then he came and got her and he was pissed because she was at an age where he could get in trouble for her running away um when she came back to the house, the rape and the rape and the abuse commenced, unfortunately. 
Um, then she talks about this time when she was in high school and it's, it's one of the only sweet times that I think she has in her entire life, but it still sucks. So, um, and that's like kind of the nature of her life is that she has these little glimpses of like something positive or good and they're flawed or fucked, you know, like nothing is ever good for her. Um, one of the only sweet times in the book is when she talks about a short and sweet romance that she has in high school. Um, when she finally did go back to school, she was probably like two years behind. So even though she was like 16 years old, I think she was a freshman. She fell in love with a boy she calls Eric. I also think she um, uh, protects some people by using different names throughout the book. He loved her poetry. He didn't care what others thought about them t- uh, together. And he gave her the love and confidence she had never had. One day, he told her he loved her. He let her know that she was worthy of being loved. It was the first time she consensually ever had sex. Weeks later, she felt nauseous and learned she was pregnant. And right after that, she got a phone call from his girlfriend who alerted her to his cheating. Michelle never told him about the baby because she felt like he didn't deserve to know. Because at that point, he had started ignoring her at school because he knew he had gotten caught, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Um, And she said this was the first time she ever actually felt heartbreak. She's like, I had felt pain before, but I had never felt heartbreak. She did have to tell her mom, though, right? So she dropped out of school. And after about five months of pregnancy, she was really, really pregnant and starting to show. And so at this point, I guess her abuser was still raping her. And but when she got to five months pregnant, she was able to, like, talk her way or push him off of her so he stopped raping her until after she gave birth at least god damn i know and also at the five month mark of her pregnancy her father and mother split up and he moved out on october 24th 1999 michelle gave birth to a little boy named joey aka huggy bear she loved him more than anything and she tried to fill his life up with the best things that she could there is this really sweet story about one christmas morning She couldn't afford a Christmas tree, so she just, like, went around the neighborhood and, like, grabbed branches and leaves and, like, glued and taped them together to make a tree. Because she's like, dude, he's, like, two. He doesn't know, you know? And, like, they sang Christmas songs, and she just, like, wrapped up whenever she could so that he had things to open, you know? And she, by all accounts, like, sounded like she was the best mom that she could be. And, you know, given her circumstances. And again, I don't think she was a terrible mom at all. You know, I think she was probably as good a mom as she could be. Throughout her memoir, she talks about Joey constantly being the driving force to keep her going on. In the spring of 2000. Oh, God. Okay, so if her life wasn't shitty enough in the spring of 2002, while out looking for jobs, her mother was supposed to watch Joey. But when Michelle got back. Her mother's new boyfriend, Carlos, was actually watching him. Joey was so panicked when she got home that he peed himself. And Carlos got mad at him and grabbed his leg, which fractured his knee. When Michelle took him to the hospital, she thought that if she had told the truth, he would be taken away from her because of the unsafe living conditions. So she lied Mm -hmm. and said that he fell at the park. But... Carlos actually felt guilt and told his sister what he had done. And the sister called the hospital. And then social workers got involved and they're like, you lied to us. So Uh, we're going to take your kid away. Fucking really? Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. 
Because Michelle had lied and the baby was living in an unsafe environment, social workers took him away and put him into foster care. After this, she would go through a lot of pain and struggle going to court dates and supervised visits. And this obviously is before cell phones and GPS. I mean, before widespread cell phone and GPS. And you got to remember, she's super duper poor. Yeah. So whenever she had to go to these supervised visits or court dates or anything, she would have to walk everywhere because she couldn't afford the bus or a taxi. She was not often, but she was a few times late. Like sometimes, like I think the first time she was late was by like three or five minutes. And that was like a demerit on like her record. And it would go against her getting him back. On her way to one of these visits, she was lost and freaking out. And so she went into a family dollar store to ask a cashier for directions. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, Ariel Castro is there. And she recognizes him because she's like, oh, that's like my friend's dad. Right. And she was he looked familiar. She had like heard him before. She didn't really know him, know him, but she just he wasn't a total stranger to her. So he butted into the conversation and was like, I know where that is. I can take you there. And she was like, sick, bro, because she was almost about to be late. And he was like, it's right around the corner. And so she jumps into his van with him. That is like the moment, you know, and this is when her life would change forever. Also, something interesting, and we'll talk about it later, is that this was also the summer that Elizabeth Smart was abducted from her bedroom within like the same month. Unfortunately, her family believed, oh, but not like Elizabeth Smart. Michelle's family believed that she had run away after losing custody of Joey so she was not really looked after. But there are some accounts that say that the mom did put up some flyers, but I, <laughs> Michelle does not talk about it in her book. She does not like her mom. However, her family did report her missing the next day at least. Ariel offered to take Michelle to the place she was going to. She got into his car, but first he needed to make a stop at his house. He mentioned that his dog had just had puppies. And she loved puppies. Who doesn't love I puppies? I know. Who doesn't? If you don't love puppies, you're not real. There's something wrong with you. And she was like, oh, my son Joey loves puppies. Let's go see those puppies. I think I think anyone she, can get you in their van if they're uh, told. Oh, absolutely. Candy or puppies, I'm definitely in your van. <laughs> <laughs> but like, also, I'm again... Like, she talks about it in her memoir. She's like, I love puppies, but hey, I actually love my son more, so I really need to get to that appointment. That's when I would have fucking jumped out of the car and been like, I, I'll find this shit on my own, you know? But again, I'm not her, and I'm not in her situation, and I do love puppies, so I don't know, you know? Okay, so she went to go see the puppies, and Ariel locked her away for the next 4,000 days. 4,000 days? Yeah. Holy shit. I know. Just putting that into perspective. She went to go see puppies and then was a prisoner for 4,000 days. So let that be a lesson to you, Amy. I know. I know. No puppies. No more puppies. No more puppies. On the first day of her captivity, Knight was tied with extension cords, strung up on poles, and raped by Castro. Once he was done, she was raised up off the floor and gagged with a duct tape and a dirty with duct tape and a dirty sock. 
After getting raped by Castro for the first time, Knight was moved into the basement and chained for months. In the basement, she was left with a bucket that she could use as a toilet, and he rarely ever dumped it, so it was fucking gross. Castro unchained Knight only to rape her. For the first eight months, she was not even given a chance to bathe. She was fed only once or twice a day. Sometimes he would go, I think, days without feeding her. And when he did give her food, it was often like day-old McDonald's hamburgers that he would throw on the ground right next to her poop. So, yeah. So she would refuse to eat, and she got so sickly at a certain point that he had to force feed her rock-hard McDonald's. Like, anyways... Additionally, she was forced to wear a motorcycle helmet to keep her like disoriented and scared and just not knowing if it was like night or day in this dark basement with these chains on. And at one point she did actually break free when it was when I think she was just zip tied and he found out about it. And that's when he put like gnarlier chains on her. And he would do fucked up things like pretend to leave. Oh, right. And then like wait five minutes to see if she would move. And if he if she moved or tried to make a sound or tried to get free, he would run back down and fucking beat her up and rape her. So he just wanted to terrify the shit out of her so she would never attempt to leave. So anyone who is like, I would have just left that. Fuck you. Because he terrorized her. She was scared to breathe. After taking Knight out of the basement, Castro would unchain her in his bedroom to rape and torture her. At this point, I should, we should really have a, <laughs> we need to add to the beginning of this episode that this episode might not be for everybody. <laughs> well, we can there's, punch in a disclaimer. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of sexual abuse and there's going to be some animal abuse coming up. So... For some reason, some people find animal abuse worse than, like, the violent raping of a woman or man, um, which is a little beyond me. I mean, I get it. I fucking love dogs. I get it. But I actually think uh, Michelle Knight being chained down in a fucking basement and beaten and raped repeatedly and, you know, causing miscarriages, I actually think that's worse than hurting a puppy. Yeah. So if that bothers you, I'll let you know when you can, you know, fast forward for 30 seconds or so. But also, what's wrong with you? Okay. Glad we got that settled. Yeah. Well, it it does bother me when people care more about animal lives than than people lives. And I used to be one of those people. But then I, I don't know. I just after having enough conversations with marginalized groups of people who are treated worse than like cattle, I can't I can't be on that white people bandwagon where you love dogs more than people. <laughs> you have to love them equally. There you go. OK, I love them equally. All right. After taking Knight out of the basement, Castro would unchain her in his bedroom to rape and torture her. At this point of the book, she refers to Ariel only as the dude. As to not like, but it does kind of remind me of the Big Lebowski. Yeah. But she she just can't fucking call him by his name. And it very much is reminiscent of the color purple. Um, Celie only refers to her rapist, abuser, husband, and later on BFF, which is weird, as Mr. So if you've read the color purple or seen the movie, then you know. 
She doesn't want to give him that power, I'm assuming. She doesn't out she also doesn't make a conscious effort. Well, she doesn't make a specific effort to let the reader know that, but after she calls him Ariel Castro like the first time when she meets him in the uh, family dollar store, she never refers him to that by that again. Michelle writes, "The entire time I was in the basement, I know oh, this this part's really gross, okay? The entire time I was in the basement, I never got to wash up or take a shower. When my period came, He'd throw a few napkins on the floor in front of me. Use these, he said. I tried to roll them up and turn them into something like a tampon, but he never gave me enough, so I had brown blotches of dried blood all over my body. I also had so much of his dried semen in my hair that when I touched it, it was as hard as a rock. And there is... I know. And there is at one point, he finally, after like eight or ten months or something finally lets her take a shower she can't even like get her hair wet it's like a fucking rock on her head so she takes scissors and she has to cut all of her hair off before she can take a shower it's fucking gnarly i've never heard shit like this i know and this the whole time she's never had her clothing washed or anything at this point it's just molding off of her After a few weeks, Ariel Castro brought a radio for her. He would do this, and that's something that Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight talk about, is that he was, like, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, but Dr. Jekyll mostly. Dr. Jekyll's a bad one, right? Uh, I can't remember. Mr. Hyde. Oh, Mr. Hyde's a bad one? Okay. He was mostly the bad guy. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he would act like he gave a shit. And he'd be like, you're bored. I'm going to get you a radio. Or you're bored. I'm going to get you a TV. And you're like, what the fuck? So he did. He gave her a radio so that she had something to listen to. But get this. He warned her not to listen to N-words, which um, we can. What? I'm not going to say the word, but he didn't want her to listen to black people. Because on top of being the biggest piece of shit rapist and kidnapper of all time, he was also fucking racist. He hated black people. That's weird. It's weird. Puerto Rican, right? Yeah. But it's weird. That was a rule in the house. No black people on television or radio. He fucking hated them. Isn't that weird? This guy is just. Yeah, he's a fucking psycho. Castro also, okay, so she kept mentioning she was just trying to find, she, you know, again, like, she was trying to humanize herself. Well, I don't even think she was trying to humanize herself with him. I think she just wanted fucking company. And so she started bringing up the fact, like, hey, you lured me into this house with promises of a puppy, and now I'm stuck here as your fucking prisoner. The least you could do is get me a goddamn puppy. And she mentions it a bunch, and one fucking day, he brings home a pit bull puppy, and he's like, here, make sure it shits in the box. If it shits outside of the box, I'm going to kill it. Spoiler. Okay. I mean, not spoiler alert. This is, again, if you can't handle animal cruelty, it, fast forward a minute. Okay. So she bring he brings home this pit bull puppy named Lobo. Well, she names it Lobo. Seven months later, when he was drunk and raping her, he forgot to take the dog out of the room. And when the pit bull tried to protect Knight from Castro, quote, without blinking an eye, he used his big hands to break the dog's neck. Lobo let out one last yelp, and then his body went limp. The dude threw my puppy's broken body into, uh, right onto the mattress. You killed my baby, I screamed. Get out. Get out right now. I beat at him with my fists. I didn't care what he did to me now. 
He did get out, but he took me and Lobo's body with him. He unchained me from the bed and dumped the dog in, in the cardboard box. Then, carrying the box in one arm, he dragged me downstairs. At the back door, he warned me, I dare you to move from this spot. Then he walked outside and threw Lobo's body over the back fence. I knew he would knock the piss out of me later, but I sobbed and screamed as loud as I could from the open door, which what the fuck? How did no one hear her? And not just because my little sweetie was gone. I also wanted someone, anyone to hear me, but apparently no one did. Hey, that's a rough one. Yeah, fucking A. Yeah. During her first winter in captivity, Michelle Knight was left naked in a bedroom for months. After several months of her captivity, Knight was also given a small color television and was again warned not to watch anything related to black people. Repeatedly raped, she became pregnant five times and Ario kicked, punched, slammed, or hit her with a barbell as a result of which she suffered a miscarriage each time she got pregnant. Michelle endured eight brutal months alone in that hell house. So I'm going to read a little more of her book just straight from there because he says some things that kind of serve as a precursor to him abducting Amanda Barry. I almost said Amanda Knox, not Amanda Knox. <laughs> he kept like talking about blondes, you know, and how he wanted to have a blonde to add to his collection of women, I guess. So he says, I wish I had gotten to that little John Bonet Ramsey first, he said. If some other bastard didn't get her first, that could have been me. He smiled, and I wanted to punch him right in the teeth. Another time he made the same kind of nasty comment about Elizabeth Smart, who was abducted just two months before I was in the summer of 2002. I know, I'm a sick man, he said. I hate the way I am. Then why are you doing what you're doing? My voice was shaky. Just because somebody did something bad to you doesn't mean you can turn around and do bad things to other people. He was quiet for a minute before he said, I can't help myself. I have to hurt you. You are sick, I said. Seeing him frown, I added, but there's help for people like you. Why don't you go let me get you some help? I won't tell anyone you took me. Just let me go and we can forget this ever happened. So after he told her this, he told her that once he got two other girls, he would let her go. That's when a plan went into action. He began boarding up windows in the other rooms and moved her around from, I believe, the pink room to the blue room. The idea pained her to know that he would abduct two other girls but she also thought that if someone else were there, there would be more of a chance of him getting caught. But then she also worried, too, that if he got caught while abducting another girl, that she would die in the home because no one would think to go there. I don't exactly know. Like, she was just having lots of thoughts about it, and it made her really sad and nervous. And then anytime she felt sad or nervous, she would talk to her son or Lobo as if they were there. And Castro would, like, snap at her and be like, stop acting crazy. Because she's the fucking crazy one, you know? You know what I hate about this Castro guy is... I, everything? <laughs> well, yeah, but he always is trying to play like he's the victim. Yeah, and, like, like... When he, you know, later on when he's arrested and stuff and, then like, in interviews and stuff. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm the victim here. 
Yeah. Fuck that guy. Life has been so hard to me. I I was victimized when I was young, so therefore I'm allowed to be the victimizer. Like I have to do this I to you. I have to do this to you. Like I'm entitled to you. And yeah. Like, fuck it's off. Fucking gross. Um, so I mentioned a color TV before. So when he did finally give her one, she was able to catch up on the news. And again, like her book, both of the books, they do this thing where there's these like little glimpses of regular life. And it's almost hard to believe that regular life is going on, even as a reader. And and definitely for her, because her fucking life is a hellhole, you know, where she's just getting beaten and raped and tortured every single day. And she's absolutely filthy. Everything she loves has been stripped away from her. And she doesn't even love all that much stuff because her life has been shit, you know. So she's able to catch up on um, the news. And this is probably like, I would say, six months after she's abducted. So in the time that she had been abducted, Elizabeth Smart was found. Michael Jackson had held his baby over a balcony the year before. I remember that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I went to the hotel that he did that in uh, in Berlin. It's right by the uh, Brandenburg Gate. There's a little fact. Wow. The Anaheim Angels beat the San Francisco Giants to win the World Series. I don't remember that. I don't either. Kelly Clarkson won the first round of American Idol. I sadly do remember that. I actually don't. (laughs) I think I was too busy with my first year of college. And I definitely did not have cable then. You really missed out. (laughs) But um, she couldn't watch a lot of the episodes of American Idol because there were too many black contestants on there. You know, that fuckhead. And so she would have to turn it off all the time when he came into the room. And her favorite show was Everybody Loves Raymond. And she said that she thought the show was funny and everything. But she said the moments when Raymond would take his family out to dinner or do something nice for them, she would get really sad and be like, I'm never going to have that. I'm never going to have someone to love. I'm never going to go out to dinner again. That's so fucking sad. Yeah, especially because that show really sucked. I know. <laughs> and actually, I was just talking to my sister about this, but every and everybody loves Raymond. He's a fucking asshole. She was telling me about... Yeah, he's a snarky fuck. I, I've never watched the show, but she said that there was this one episode that she really fucking hated because it's... I think it's his birthday. No, it's not even his birthday or anything. It's just like a night out. It's, you know, it's like it's a regular night. And the wife calls him at work and she's like, hey, I have dinner ready for you. And she's this beautiful, wonderful wife. And he was like, oh, it's going to be a late night at the office. And she's, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So she like decides to bring his dinner to him to like surprise him. And he's just like hanging out with his friends and eating pizza. And it's like, laugh track, you know. And my sister's like, Fuck that guy. He's got this beautiful wife who's fucking making dinner for him and he fucking lies to her to make her like feel bad. Like, fuck that guy. But nonetheless, that's not really the point of I think that was one part of one episode. That wasn't the premise. No, I know, but I he seems like, you know, he kinda has I don't know, but doesn't but doesn't he No, I but doesn't he have like an Al Bundy-ish kind of like disposition towards his wife? Okay. If you had to throw Al Bundy. Because also, Katie Seagal is hot. Peggy Bundy Married is hot. Married with Children was one of the greatest shows ever But, created. like, why does Al act like he fucking hates his family so much? So stupid. Such a stupid premise of TV shows. There's a fine line between love and hate. 
Okay. I guess we haven't been married long enough for you to for you to put your hand down your pants and start a club called No Ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got something to tell you. <laughs> Ew. Is that what the new band you joined is called No Ma'am? <laughs> I wasn't on tour. <laughs> I was in the garage. <laughs> Okay, sorry. We have to stop laughing because there's a, there's a really sad detail to the everybody loves Raymond too. She said that often when he would rape her, it would be during the time that that TV show was on, and so she would actually turn. She was able to like turn and watch it. Oh fuck! And like because at this point she has right. like you she's compartment yeah, yeah disconnected compartmentalized right. And she said the only thing, like the one thing she kind of noticed was that it was strange for the audience to be laughing while she was being <laughs> that raped. Is fucked that, up. that like that's a weird fucking connection, you know. That kind of reminds me of like the Joker, that new Joker movie. Oh yeah, parts like that yeah, yeah, totally. That weird connection, that disconnect. Yeah, happy music while some terrible's happening. Oh, happy music like what? The Gary Glitter fucking soundtrack when he's like going nuts. Yeah, that was yeah. But all right. So here's an I, I did a fairly large clips of her book because this is when the stories t- kind of start to merge a little bit. And I start to go more into the second memoir, the dual memoir uh, that I read. So this is uh, Michelle Knight still. Yesterday on April 21st, 16-year-old Amanda Berry was reported missing. When I heard a TV news reporter say these words, I got up and leaned over to the TV to turn up the volume a bit. The girl was last seen leaving her job at Burger King on Lorraine Avenue and West 110th Street in Cleveland. That's close to here, I thought. A picture of a blonde girl flashed up onto the screen. I recognized her picture. That's the girl who used to be in my art class, I realized. She was a lot younger than me, but I was so far behind in school that we ended up being in some of the same classes. Right away, I had a sick feeling in my gut that the dude had snatched Amanda. Amanda seemed like the type of girl he claimed to like, young and blonde. He was always talking about how much he wanted to have sex with blondes like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. Plus, I knew exactly where the Burger King was. It wasn't far from his house, and he was always going to fast food restaurants. Okay, now this is me, so that's the end of that. Amanda Berry is a typical 16-year-old girl. She loves M&M and works at Burger King. She's saving up for college, which she plans on attending soon. She is very close with her family. Her sister lives downstairs with her husband and two kids. Her brother-in-law is also her manager at the Burger King nearby. Amanda's mother and sister work together at a factory. So they're all super close. On April 21st, 2003, Amanda finishes her shift at a Burger King restaurant. And again, like I said before, it's the day before her 17th birthday. Her boyfriend isn't answering his phone. Her sister isn't coming to pick her up, and her mother doesn't drive. She's a little annoyed at having to walk home. While on her cell phone, okay, so again, we're already getting a glimpse into Amanda being a little more stable, like, you know, economically than Michelle was, or a lot more stable. Just a better home life. Yeah, just just every all around, just a better life. Like, she has no real complaints. Her biggest complaint is that, like, her mom won't let her play music as loud as she wants, you know? Yeah, she's not living in the back of a car eating rotten apples. Yeah. And getting raped by her uncle or, like, cousin or something for, like, 12 years. Fuck. 
while on her cell phone with her best friend who offers to pick her up. And Amanda says, no, it's okay. You don't have to do that. Oh, God. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I know. She had so many rides like sort of lined up, but didn't take any of them, you know? Because mm-hmm. I think even her sister offered. She's like, I'm off a little bit later and I can come pick you up. And she's like, no, that's okay. A maroon colored van drives by. She thinks she recognizes the girl in the passenger seat, but she just continues talking on the phone. The van circles around again, this time stopping. The man offers her a ride. She nods, yes, and gets off the phone. I mean, he isn't totally a stranger, she thinks, because she is wearing a Burger King outfit. He asks her if she knows his son. Oh, so after she gets in the van, he's asking her this. He asks her if she knows his son, Ariel Anthony Castro, who has since dropped the Ariel. And she does remember him. He's a friend of a friend. And she also went to middle school with Angie, his older daughter. He asks her if she wants to go see Angie, and she obliges. When they pull up, he asks to see her cool new phone. Then he holds on to it. He invites her into the house, with the phone still in his hand, and says that Angie must be taking a bath. He says he has a roommate and invites her to sort of peek into Michelle's room, which Amanda does for an awkward second. When she tries to leave, he blocks the door and demands her to pull down her pants. <laughs> she screams and wonders why the roommate doesn't hear anything. And this is one of the reasons that I was almost, I hate to say, I was almost mad at Michelle Knight because I'm like, it's almost like she was like, good, that's what happened to me. You know, like, and after reading her memoir, I absolutely don't think that. She didn't know, like, Amanda was, like, in the house for a while. I won't say it was days or months or weeks because the the details get very vague around now, and I don't blame either of them for having vague details because they were fucking, like, starving and being tortured and raped constantly. Yeah, like, sure. I think that their timeline's a little fucked. <clears throat> he binds her with duct tape, puts more tape over her mouth. Oh, so before that, he masturbates. He binds her with duct tape, puts more tape over her mouth, pulls the helmet, the same one that Michelle had, over her head, and throws her over his shoulder to take her down to the basement. She struggles to get the duct tape loose uh, from all over, and like myself, she thinks of TV shows that would be on as a way of measuring time passing. I think it's because she can hear the TV upstairs that Michelle is. She doesn't explicitly say that. But I think that once, like, she hears cops come on, she kind of passes out. Ariel comes down the next day and tends to her wound. So very different from Michelle. He gets Band-Aids and he's, like, bandaging up her fingers because, like, the way she was picking off the tape on herself, she ended up breaking a lot of her fingernails and stuff. And he washes her hair. She said, like, kind of like a baby with shampoo. And he's just treating her like this baby doll a little bit. She's got the blonde hair. Yeah. But then he chains her back down in the basement while the TV is blaring so that no one can hear. She doesn't explicitly say, but I'm pretty sure she's also being raped repeatedly at this point. And then she remembers it's her birthday. Fuck. I know. Four days later, he brings her upstairs. So with Michelle, I think it was weeks or months before she came upstairs. But with Amanda, it's four days later. And And we know this because she starts keeping a journal. So this is like April 25th, and she was abducted on April 21st. So that we actually know, and that's one of the reasons the timeline is so specific, is that 
uh, the dual memoir called Hope was very much based around the 1,200 pages of notes that Amanda kept while she was in captivity. Oh, yeah. So she had like literally over a thousand pages that she was able to draw from for her memoir. Again, so very dissimilar from Michelle's experience, which she's not comparing them. I am. He pads the chains with socks because they hurt her. She watches TV with him. He offers, you know, and she sees her family crying and pleading for her on TV. He is proud of that because he's like, I've taken a girl who means something to someone. She is like a high commodity or something. I don't know what the fuck. He's also friends with her dad. No. That's Gina. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Her dad is MIA. Uh, That's the only thing that Amanda doesn't really have a relationship with her dad. In the first six days that she does say this, in the first six days that she is kidnapped, he rapes her 25 times. Four or five times every day. Her accounts of the assault and time passing are documented on burger wrappers and in journals she requests from him. He lies and tells her he is only going to keep her captive for a few months. So, knowing that, she's marking the times he rapes her with X's in her journal, kind of secretly, so that she can hold him accountable when she gets the chance, which she thinks is going to be soon. She wants him to pay for what he has done to her. After about a month, she has still never met the girl in the other room. She begins to clean and do laundry for Castro because she is, like, fucking bored. And he he treats her fucking horribly, but at the same time, like, he kind of lets her go for periods of time. And he, like, wants to hold her hand and wash her hair and stuff. Like, he, like I said, he thinks that he's in a relationship with Amanda. Amanda is not fucking fooled by it or anything like that. She's just going along with it because she doesn't want to die. Right. She begins to clean and do laundry for Castro, like I was saying, and they have this strange relationship all the while she's very much a prisoner. Um, She's on the news every single day. And soon after, a huge billboard goes up. There are parts of the book that gives us glimpses into the past lives of Amanda, Gina, and Ariel. And I did find that Ariel's father's arm was chopped off by a machete because of a girl. Just so you know. Wow. Yeah. We find out that Amanda is extremely bright and serious about school. She went to a school called John Marshall High School, which I I worked at a school called John Marshall High School, so that's why I remembered. Because her high school was so bad, she said there was so much fighting, there was so much drama in the hallways. I've also worked at a school like that, that too. (laughs) She elected to be in a homeschooling program where she could learn at home and mail her work in to be graded by teachers. And even though it was a public school option, she had to pay for it. And it was like $40 out of each paycheck she got from Burger King. So she actually paid for her own education. And she said on her first test, uh, her first psychology test, she got 100%. Nice. Nine days after she began the program, that's when she was kidnapped. Fuck. I know. It's just every, you know, nine days after starting this new school and this new life, you know, one day before her 17th birthday, a year before she's about to graduate, like all these fucking good things are about to happen for her. And it, and again, like it doesn't make it better or worse than what happened with the Michelle Knight. But it, again, just kind of shows the juxtaposition of the two stories. They're so, they they have the same, you know, somewhat same experience of being abducted, but their situations are so radically different. And that's just something that keeps coming up and keeps coming up, you know. She watches a lot of TV. 
She hears about the body of Molly Bish being found in the woods three years after her abduction in Massachusetts. And one of the reasons that kind of rang a bell for me is Crime Junkies just covered Molly Bish's case, like literally this week. She feels extremely bad for the family. She watches talk shows and she uses them to learn and build herself up. She eventually stops marking the X's in her journal because each time she looks at them, she's reminded of the trauma and is too much for her to bear. So she stops doing that for a while. One year after Amanda was abducted on April 2nd, 2004, Gina de Jesus toasts up some Pop-Tarts to eat for breakfast. Gina is a 14-year-old Puerto Rican girl with a huge, loving family. On the morning of her abduction, her father goes out to the Nissan to warm it up for her. Her father bought the car from none other than Ariel Castro, her good friend Arlene's dad. And I think I may have messed up the names Arlene and Emily. Uh, mm. That's the name of his daughter. Okay. Gina loves listening to the radio, 96.5 KISS FM. And no matter the song, Christina Aguilera, Gwen Stefani, Alicia Keys, Usher, Kanye West, those are the ones she lists, she sings along with them. She loves roller skating and hanging out with her friends. After roller skating with her friends, she stops at a payphone with a friend, oh, with Arlene, which is Ariel Castro's daughter. And Ariel Ca Arlene calls home to Nilda and asks, can I spend the night over at Gina's house? And she says no. So she's like, oh, sorry. And so she walks away. And so Gina starts to walk away as well to start to walk home. A Jeep passes by. So at this point, they separate. Yeah. A Jeep passes by within, I would say, like a minute of them departing each other, you know? And it's Ariel Castro. And she knows Ariel Castro. The other two girls are like, yeah, he's vaguely a dude I sort of know. But like Gina, this is like, I won't, I won't say it's a second dad or anything, but it's one of her best friend's dads that she sees yeah. all the time. And he goes, hey, have you seen my daughter? And she goes, yeah, I just saw her. She's like literally right there. Literally turned the car around and she's right there. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 no. Get in the car. Come help me. And she was like, but that's annoying. So she gets in the car because she's just like, um, you know, Mr. Castro being a quirky fucking asshole. I don't know. So just a she quirky racist fucker. <laughs> just a quirky racist rapist. So he asked her to help his daughter uh, find his daughter. She gets in the car. He takes her back to the house. <sighs> he pulls a dirty pillow over her head. He threatens to beat her with a pipe if she doesn't submit, and he proceeds to rape her. He chains her up around the neck and stomach with her lips bleeding and blasts the radio so that no one can hear her screams, and he leaves her there. She keeps wondering, why is Arlene's dad doing this to me? By this point, Gina's family is freaking out. Yeah, that's fucking crazy. Like, your friend's dad? Yeah, just that thought keeping going through your head. Why is this happening to me? Why is my friend's dad doing this, you know? I had to stop because I think similar to your Johnny Gosh experience, like I've, you know, I've read these books too and I'm a little emotionally exhausted. I mean, I just, yeah. So I kind of want to say, like, I'm not saying that there's all good stuff ahead because it's going to be, at this point, Michelle Knight has been kidnapped for two years. Amanda Berry has been for one year and Gina de Jesus is, you know, just got, just got abducted. So it goes on for a long time. To so come. it's about at this point where it's going to be 
close to nine years more of this fucking horrendous abuse. And obviously I'm not going to go through like every single day for like the next nine or 10 years. And so, so I was going to spend some time on some significant events in the house during that time. And one of the most significant is the birth of Amanda's baby, Jocelyn. Yeah. That's obviously a big event for all of them. And she's born fairly soon after Gina is abducted. Because I think at this point in the story, I think Amanda's already pregnant. And she was able to talk Ariel into letting her keep the baby, basically. She was also the quote-unquote girlfriend, right? Or like he he considered her the wife. He He said, and I don't know if this has been substantiated or not, but he told Amanda that he called her mom to tell her that Amanda's happy and married and like, she's fine and she doesn't want to come home. I don't, I don't know if that's, that has been substantiated because unfortunately Amanda's mother passed away while she was still abducted and missing. Yeah. So that's super sad. So I don't know if that story has been corroborated or substantiated or whatever. Also like Ariel Castro would go help the De Jesus family. Like, yeah, he like grabbed flyers. Yeah. He was like riding by search parties and stuff. Yeah, well, I don't know if he, like, donated money or anything, but when he was riding by on his motorcycle one day with the the De Jesus's gave him a bunch of flyers, and when he brought it back to the house, she drew, like, pictures and put stickers and other things all over her missing flyer. She's 14 years old. She was, like, collage, you know. She was doing the things that a 14-year-old would want to do, like, in a class or, like, at home. You know, like doing art projects, but it's so macabre because it's with her own missing poster. But one of the reasons that she loved her missing poster so much is that the last person who had touched it besides Ariel Castro was her mother. And so it was like this piece of paper that had been handled by her mother. It was like one of the only things that reminded her of her home. It's so incredibly sad. But I will say that Gina very much is... Michelle and Amanda's like little sister they both love her so so much and that comes through in both of their memoirs big time I wish that yeah I don't know even when they do like interviews and stuff like Michelle is always separate from the other two yeah I've noticed that too yeah when they met President Obama you know five six years ago or whatever it was Michelle wasn't with them you know and she very much is like I have to I have to blaze my own path like I can't I can't, like, you guys remind me too much of my past and I can't do it. I will say that all three women are healthy and happy uh, today. And like I said, in the next episode, we'll kind of wrap up some loose ends and talk about a lot of the aftermath because there are some really interesting things that come out of it. Mostly good, some terrible, but mostly good. So... So we'll leave it here. For yeah, now. We'll, we'll leave it here for now and we'll come back and then um, we might do a little bit of a palate cleanser before we move into J.C. Dugard, which is a very, very, very interesting case. And though it is I, there's no comparison, like they're all fucking terrible. J.C. Dugard, just as a reminder, she was gone for 19 years, so almost twice as long yeah, as that's fucking yeah. insane. Yeah. And let's not forget, I mean, we're not going to go into Fritzel ever, because I just don't think I could do that. But Fritzel, Elizabeth Fritzel was gone for 24. She was just in her father's fucking dungeon underneath his house, having his kids. 
Aren't people great? I know. So anyways, that's it for now. So drop us a line. Let us know how we're doing. Are you bummed out yet? <laughs> you can join our Facebook group called True Crime Dumpster. We're also on Instagram. We need to get better about updating that one. It's just True Crime Dumpster. We're on Twitter, which we're getting better at, TC Dumpster. True Crime Dumpster at gmail.com and True Crime Dumpster.com. So just find us. I have the next 70 episodes lined up for sure, but <laughs> not even joking. There might be a little wiggle room. Yeah. So if you have like a recommendation or a request, throw it out there. We'd love to hear what you guys want to hear. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking about abductions. Because <laughs> I, I guess there is like that light at the end of the tunnel with these at least is that they're, they're not dead. They're not dead. <laughs> and sometimes I think just talking about dead women and dead children all the time, like so many crime shows do, gets a little old. So... Anyways, we'll have a palate cleanser next week, as well as a conclusion of Ariel Castro. And then we'll do one more, two more abductions here or there. But then um, we'll we'll move on to other some other cases that we've already started researching. Yep. So we can leave you with a little palate cleanser now, a little ode to Cleveland. Oh yeah. So we'll leave you with that. All right, join us next week when we keep talking out the trash. Adios. Fun times in Cleveland again. Still Cleveland. Come on down to Cleveland Town, everyone. Under construction since 1868. See our river that catches on fire. It's so polluted that all our fish have AIDS. We see the sun almost three times a year. This guy has at least two DUIs. The flats look like a Scooby-Doo ghost town. Don't slow down in East Cleveland or you'll die. Our economy's based on LeBron James. Buy a house for the price of a VCR. Our main export is crippling depression. We're so retarded that we think this is art. It could be worse though, at least we're not Detroit. We're not Detroit. Yeah, another disclaimer here. The views represented in this song do not necessarily represent the views held by the true crime dumpster family. Thank you and good night.